0: If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you
1: enjoy this episode. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com socks.
2: Hello, welcome to BBC History Magazine's weekly podcast. I'm Dave Musgrove, editor of the magazine, and this is the third of our December 2011 editions. Of course, you will no doubt remember that Beeps History magazine is on sale in all good news agents and on subscription. Our website, historyextra.com, follow us on twitter.com slash historyextra or facebook.com slash historyextra. Coming up this week, we have...
3: Let's leave the bambification of the British Tommy to one side.
2: Michael Snape there on religion, society and war over the last couple of centuries.
1: There's even articles in the newspaper called Dislike of Women.
2: And that was Julie Gottlieb talking about female voters. first interview this week is with dr michael snape reader in religion war and society at the university of birmingham and an authority on the interplay between religion and war over the last couple of centuries the first question i asked him when i went up to birmingham to interview him was just to introduce his research to us
3: i'm quite happy to talk about the the subject of of religion and modern war really from about 1800 through to present day and basically maybe elaborate on the theme of how we in the West seem to be slightly handicapped, in a sense, in our understanding of uh, the religious dimensions of conflict because we seem to have written off the importance of religion as a society, whereas the rest of the world seems to be uh, re-emphasising the importance of religion. Okay. So, uh, you know, a classic case would be if we're dealing with organisations such as Al-Qaeda, who tell the West and all and sundry specifically why they're fighting a conflict, which is specifically religious reasons, Westerners hear it, and instead of listening to what's being said, they think, all this will be solved by economic investment. You know, if we reduce unemployment, if we reduce corruption, they're not hearing what is being said to them.
2: Okay,
3: Uh, That's because Westerners operate increasingly uh, against a highly secularised framework, which simply writes religion out of the public sphere. Religion is irrelevant. So in actual fact, Westerners are content to have uh, a situation where they're simply not listening to what is being told to them, very directly and very explicitly. And I think what this uh, reflects is a problem in um, historiography, certainly in the late 20th century, in the later 20th century. I mean, if one considers that Not until the last quarter of the 20th century, with historians such as Jonathan Riley Smith archetypally dealing with the history of the Crusades, were the Crusades treated seriously as a religious phenomenon as opposed to an economic or land-grabbing exercise. The same could be true also of um, studies of the British Civil Wars. Marxist historians working in the 60s and 70s attributed all sorts of reasons and all sorts of dimensions to the British Civil Wars while trying to downplay what was probably the most important, i.e. the religious dimension. And while later historians have rediscovered these dimensions, have rediscovered these depths, I think we're still in the business of lagging behind in terms of our understanding of the importance of religion even in British wars, British conflicts, against other European societies. And what this means, of course, is that when we look at somebody such as Sir Douglas Haig, a very controversial figure in 20th century British history, arguably the most controversial figure in many respects, Uh, many biographers of Haig, many commentators on the British Army in the First World War, uh, particularly given the explosion of studies... On the British Army in the First World War that occurred from the 1960s onwards, have failed to understand the religious culture in which Haig was operating, the religious language which he used, the religious reference points which dominated his own understanding of who he was, why he was Commander-in-Chief, why he was in that position at that time, and have often decried Haig as some kind of religious uh, maniac, while failing to recognize that the sort of sentiments that Haig expressed, the sort of ideas that he articulated, were generic to his social class, generic to uh, people of his education. The fact that he had a good biblical grounding, well that was a bit like Shakespeare in the classics. All educated Britons had them. Churchill repeatedly used biblical language in his speeches to the British people in World War II. It was part of the grammar and the set knowledge of all educated Britons. Bomber Harris, again, would be a good example of somebody who invoked and used biblical rhetoric in justifying area bombing of Germany in World War Two. These people were not exceptions. They were using a cultural frame of reference, which has been lost to most of our contemporaries, and therefore means that An important dimension, an important means of understanding, even conflicts as recent as the First and Second World Wars, have been lost to generations of our current generations of historians, who simply cannot access the mindset and religious understanding, even of quite recent generations, generations until the nineteen fifties, in actual fact.
2: That's that's really interesting, um, in the sense that you're saying that we can't really understand. First and Second World Wars because we've got the secular mindset that's come through in the second half of the 20th century,
3: is, it, is that- In many respects, yes. I think the thing is, is that secularisation uh, has traditionally been seen as a long drawn out process which began arguably at the Reformation, um, more widely accepted as beginning at around the Industrial Revolution, urbanisation, enlightenment, etc., uh, the growth of an industrial society seen by 19th and 20th century sociologists as inimical to religious understanding, religious practice, religious belief. This very dubious scheme, which has been very dominant uh, in academic writing and academic studies of religion in the modern West, um, has been largely challenged, and I think very successfully challenged recently, by uh, a group of revisionist historians led by Callum Brown and Hugh McCloud, who demonstrated that secularisation of British and indeed Western cultures, largely set in the 1960s and 1970s, and far from being a long, drawn-out process, was actually a rather rapid and abrupt transformation of attitudes and reference points. Uh, the importance of this, of course, lies in the fact of an inability to detect biblical illusion religious references, which would be picked upon by previous generations who were attuned to learning Bible stories, for example, prayers, hymns in Sunday school and Sunday school for working class people, um, was a very dominant and important institution up until the latter half of the 20th century. Um, I understand, as I recollect correctly, Bomber Harris said, those who sow the wind will reap the whirlwind. Now, many contemporaries, many of our contemporaries, would not understand that that was actually a biblical reference. We accept it simply as a figure of speech. In actual fact, Harris was invoking a biblical text to justify the policy of area bombing. And that is just one um, isolated example which can be multiplied multiplied many times. If we consider, for example, Montgomery, who was obviously a very controversial general in many respects, but arguably the most popular British general of the Second World War. Montgomery's language, Montgomery's rhetoric, Montgomery's public utterances were full of biblical and religious allusions, which we would be tempted to write off as of no significance, as merely flowery points, as it were, that this son of a bishop was in actual fact-making. But in reality, what we need to understand is that when Montgomery, whose success, as much as anything else, lay in restoring the faith of the British people in the competence of their army as a pop general who, whose actions were geared as much to the British public as they were, as it were, to British soldiers, uh, Montgomery was appealing and resonating with a set of values, a set of understandings, a set of conceptions, as it were, which the generation that fought the Second World War had and which our generation doesn't have. And I think it's no accident if we understand the way in which the Second World War was viewed in religious terms by many Britons. Let's be very clear here. Britain, at the time of the Second World War, if not a church-going society, was very largely a believing society. And we have social surveys, numerous social surveys, conducted by mass observation um, to demonstrate that. And mass observation, far from being an ecclesiastical uh, bums on seats counter, was actually a left-wing social observation organisation. So it had no reason, as it were, to manipulate or massage the facts. Mass observation consistently found during the Second World War that religious belief in Britain, if not actual church practice was actually growing through the period of the Second World War, not diminishing. And it's against that backdrop that we have to understand the importance of the language that Churchill uses in his speeches, that Montgomery uses in his public addresses, not only to civilian audiences but also to his soldiers, Uh, the language of Bomber Harris when dealing with area bombing. Uh, We also have to remember the importance of the input provided by the churches and not least by Archbishop William Temple, in terms of the debate that framed uh, the introduction of the welfare state after the war, uh, Temple's book, Christianity and Social Order, is extremely important. And Temple was seen as a leading social commentator of his day and not simply as merely a kind of ecclesiastical irrelevance at the upper reaches of the British establishment. We have to understand also that Stalin understood the reasons And the importance of selling himself and indeed Soviet Russia, which up until the German invasion had been the most persecuting society in terms of its persecution of religion, that uh, arguably Christendom had seen since the Roman era, but with the German invasion, and partly in order, obviously, to rally Russians behind him, but also to sell himself more favourably to his new and firmer British and American allies, pitches himself... Uh, and indeed Russian society, as a friend of religion, the Russian Patriarchate is restored in 1944. Stalin tells the the British ambassador to Moscow that he too believes in God, etc. Stalin, of course, conjured the old trope of Holy Mother Russia and the defence of uh, a Russian homeland, a vision of Russia, which is inextricably linked with an Orthodox past. And we must remember, of course, that the Orthodox Church in Russia, until... Stalin's death and the advent of Khrushchev did very well under Stalin, comparatively well, certainly, to what had gone on before Germany's invasion in 1941. But, I'll return to this point, Stalin did this partly in order to undermine criticism of his regime for the persecution of religion, which had gone on prior to Germany's invasion. Um, So, Again, if we begin to unpack these dimensions of the Second World War and Britain's role within the Second World War, Britain's attitudes, we don't see a secular society. We see a society which is very much grounded in Christian norms, Christian concepts, a Christian self-understanding. Another very interesting point here. And again, a lot of this uh, is lost on commentators today, but is in actual fact rather significant in terms of its time. If we consider uh, simply the insignia that British soldiers wore in North Africa in the Second World War, in Northwest Europe after the invasion of Normandy, the recurring motif in British Army insignia, the insignia of Eighth Army, the insignia of First Army, the insignia of Second Army, the insignia of 21st Army Group is a Crusader's Cross. This is a continuing and recurring motif in um, British uh, military insignia of that time. Now, this might seem a very anarchy thing to be interested in, but I think it says much about the self-understanding of the British state, the British military at that time when faced with an enemy, i.e. Hitler, who is widely perceived in christian democratic societies as more anti-christian than he is anti-semitic even
2: right so are you saying that the, the the allies in the second world war and in the first world war saw themselves on a crusade against against the, the people they were fighting is that or is that going too far to
3: well the issue this the the you know the The phrase, The Last Crusade, is repeatedly invoked. There are numerous books entitled The Last Crusade This, The Last Crusade That, with reference to different campaigns. But there is no doubt, there is no doubt in actual fact, that the motives of Crusaders, the image of Crusaders, was at least imputed to Allied soldiers, in the Second World War very specifically, by Eisenhower himself on the eve of D-Day. He actually used uh, in his address to allied service personnel participating in the invasion, he actually refers to this great crusade, hopes and prayers of freedom-loving peoples, as it were, uh, behind this great effort to liberate Europe from Nazi tyranny. And I think the self-perception actually uh, correlates with other factors in European society. And again, this is something perhaps which we've uh, failed to take into account of sufficiently, that the aftermath of the Second World War, across much of Europe, saw the formation of Christian Democratic parties. Uh, Political parties which were deliberately formed in reaction to secular ideologies of Marxist socialism, communism obviously, fascism, Nazism, etc. Antidotes to this. There was a a sense of rediscovery of cultural roots of cultural heritage, which was seen as uh, an antidote, obviously, to the post-war threat of communism, but also to a possible resurgence of those secular ideologies which had led Europe over the precipice and into the abyss um, from 1939 onwards. And if we understand Britain's self-perception in the Second World War as part of that wider phenomenon and understand the religious revival which went on in 1950s America, as it were, we can understand more readily just how far we've moved in the past 50 years from those kind of attitudes, those sorts of norms, those sorts of convictions which were widespread even dominant in certain societies during and after the Second World War, but which are at present, if they exist at all, exist in only fairly residual and reduced forms in European societies. I mean a good example, I mean we're wrestling with this now, in terms of the the legacy of these years, the 1944 Education Act, and uh, what it did to promote religion in British schools for the first time ever. The education, or certainly since the introduction of compulsory education in the 1870s, uh, we have the state accepting responsibility for the religious education of all British children this is seen as a good thing, has cross-party political support as far as mass observation establishes. Uh, The vast majority of British people, even many atheists, are supportive of the attitude that religious belief, religious faith, religious values underpins and should underpin post-war British society. It's the, the spiritual dimension of the New Jerusalem which the welfare state creates. And again, issues of compulsory RE, compulsory acts of worship, which the 1944 Education Act bequeathed are still being wrestled with uh, by educationalists and teachers and schools today in against the backdrop of a very changed society.
2: Doesn't that jar slightly with the reaction, I, I may be wrong, but my, my understanding of the reaction to to religion... After the First World War, when there was a sort of a crisis of confidence in in God,
3: no, this is far more imagined than real. Right. This is all part of a historical narrative which um, in a whole meta narrative which uh, points to the first world war as the as a cataclysm and as a profoundly disillusioning experience in which practically every old certainty is thrown off as it were and discarded often with disgust by the vast majority of participants and those who experience the conflict. Um, I think as much as anything else, uh, in British popular understanding, this is influenced by, uh, by the literary work, obviously, of Siegfried Sassoon and yeah. Wilfred Owen, whose religious problems as it were, were not necessarily a product of the war in both cases, they are a product of their sexuality. Uh, a certain resentment of religion or tension, animus against religion to a certain extent, would have been felt on the part of both Sassoon and Owen because they were both homosexuals, uh, although many people who are admirers of Owen, many people would like to uh, dispute that, but much of the evidence indicates that that Owen was, as indeed was Sassoon. And in other words, their commentary on organised religion as expressed in their poetry is by no means simply a product of their experiences as infantry officers on the Western Front. And also, if we are simply to extrapolate... um, from the experience of a very small number of individuals uh, engaged in the business of, um, of, of writing verse, we have to remember that there were thousands of soldier poets in the First World War, or thousands of poets, published poets in Britain, who saw the war unfold in front of them. We tend to ignore the poetry of those whose values and ideas and sentiments jar with our own understanding of what the war was about. We tend to try and discard those and brush them under the carpet. What we forget, for example, is that A, Hausmann's poetry was extremely popular, although he wasn't a participant in the war. Uh, His his poetry is extremely popular throughout the war years, and in many respects is unaffected in terms of its patriotism, in terms of its admiration of the soldier, um, by the experience of the war. And again, you know, a classic example of how selective we are, even in our dealings with poetry, we can select one single poem. We can select In Flanders Fields, which was um, written by John McCrae, a Canadian medical officer, uh, in 1915. And everybody, of course, knows the opening lines in Flanders Fields, The Poppies Grow, etc. It conjures the maudlin image, as it were, which we all tend to love about the First World War, if we were honest. What is very, very seldom cited about Macrae's poem is the third verse. Take up our quarrel with the foe to you from failing hands to throw, the torch be yours to hold it high. If ye break faith with us who die, we shall not rest, though poppies grow in Flanders fields. It's a rallying cry to redouble the efforts of fighting men engaged in the war against Germany. It's not simply a lament for those who have fallen. It's an exhortation, notwithstanding the sacrifice already incurred, to continue the conflict.
2: As, as you pointed out, the, um, we, we've got the, the world, First World War anniversary is coming up soon. So given what you've said about um, our inability in, uh, as people living in, in a secular 21st century to understand that the First World War specifically... What should we be doing to try and understand it as those, as those anniversaries roll around? Are there any themes we ought to be thinking about, do you think?
3: In terms of the, of the anniversary, I have to be honest with you. I don't react... I try not to react emotionally to the First World War, and I think the problem about the First World War is it's the archetypal uh, war which demands or seems to demand in British society, British culture, an emotional reaction. It's... It's Disney meets the trenches, really, in a sense. And that might sound uh, harsh, but I think that it is almost expected when talking about the First World War to begin with an emotional reaction rather than a kind of irrational reaction to the conflict. My own sense of what should be done is we should understand the British soldier and other soldiers of the First World War, but perhaps particularly the British soldier, given that, you know, although it's only a small majority, the small majority of British soldiers who fought in the First World War were volunteers, not conscripts, that they were agents and actors and not simply victims, that our maudlin regard for that generation, in many respects, does them no honour. And sentimentalising them, vilifying those who led them, as it were. Not only is it a travesty from a historical point of view, but speaking as the son of of the grandson of somebody who fought in the First World War as an infantryman from 1915 to 1918, the last reaction he would have expected or appreciated of, of us and indeed of anybody else would have been pity. Essentially, as he saw it, he had a job to do, he did that job, He lost four brothers in the First World War, but that didn't embitter him in terms of his own attitude to life. He went on, as it were, the First World War. He looked at, as a painful experience, obviously, unavoidably, given uh, the scale of his family's loss, but as an ordinary British working man, the reality was he probably never felt more important in those years than he did as a civilian. And that might sound perverse to say that, But he faded back into ordinary civilian life, etc. The only time when British society probably had a regard for him, probably had an appreciation for him per se, was when he wore khaki and when he was entertained as he was, when he came home to London on leave, as it were, and people couldn't do enough for him. This was atypical of his life experience. But nevertheless, typical, I think, of the generation, or the substantial part of that generation, of British men, who saw the First World War, experienced the First World War and wore khaki. In other words, let's leave the bambification of the British Tommy to one side and let's appreciate them as agents, actors, yes, as sufferers, but also in many respects as an enormously strong generation which went through many of them, not all of them, of course, went through traumas which we can't imagine and came out the other side. And let's congratulate them on their fortitude and admire that.
2: That was Dr. Michael Snape of the University of Birmingham. And now we have a short advertisement.
3: Hi, this is Arthur Magida. My new book, The Nazi Seance, published by Paul Grave Macmillan, tells the little-known true story of a Jewish psychic and how he came to advise high-ranking Nazis, even Hitler, and earn the nickname Europe's greatest oracle since Nostradamus. Erich Jan Honnesen was a Jew from Vienna who actually predicted the infamous Reichstag fire that solidified the Nazis' grip on Germany. Honnesen's greatest attempted trick was trying to survive the very regime he served. For more information on the Nazi seance and to order the book, please visit my website naziseance.com or palgrave.com. Time
2: for our historical trivia moment now Last week we told you about ostentatious smuggling This week it's a curious animal fact Alfonso the Wise, 13th century king of Leon and Castile had a pet and that pet was a weasel which he wrote poetry for and travelled around with him in a special cage strapped to the saddle of his horse If you've got any interesting facts you'd like us to read out email us podcast at historyextra.com Right, after the failure of Neville Chamberlain's appeasement policy in the 1930s, some sectors of British society blamed female voters for encouraging a pro-peace policy. Dr Julie Gottlieb of Sheffield University has been researching this idea of the guilty women, and she tells our deputy editor, Rob Attar, how it came about.
0: Could you please give us just a bit of background about the Munich Agreement?
1: OK, well, the Munich Agreement was signed in September uh, 1938. And finally, it was signed at the Four Powers uh, Conference between uh, Italy, Germany, France and Britain. Uh, and it, it, it more or less set the terms for uh, the partition or the takeover of Czechoslovakia or the, 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 the annexation of the Sudetenland by the Nazis.
0: And it, it was kind of an idea to try and give Germany something so that there wouldn't be a war.
1: That's right. It was, uh, Germany, that was Germany's demand at that time for Lebensraum, for living space, if you like. Um, and of course, the Sudetenland was, uh, 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 you know, there were a very high concentration of German, ethnic Germans in the Sudetenland. The promise was that that would evade war, that that would appease the dictators, that that would appease Hitler, and that war would, as a, a result, be averted.
0: And Neville Chamberlain came back to Britain as a hero after that?
1: Very much so. He came back, he arrived at Heston Airport at the end of September with a, a document that said, uh, w- you know, which uh, was the Munich Agreement. And, of course, he, he flapped that in the air and said, this is peace in our time.
0: So, when does the Munich Agreement begin to collapse?
1: Well, it begins to collapse pretty immediately in, in the sense that uh, it's clear that it will be broken. But ultimately, it collapses in March 1939 when uh, Hitler's troops uh, march into Prague.
0: And so, once it's clear that the Munich Agreement hasn't brought peace in our time, d- does the popular mood go against the peacemakers?
1: It's it's gradual, and again, you know, it's really what what in the historiography, in the way that the history of of foreign. Policy uh, in the 1930s, and especially of appeasement, has been written. Uh, what the one aspect that's been neglected, uh, relatively speaking, is that of public opinion and how the people felt uh, about uh, the drift to war. I mean, so much attention has been conferred on the peacemakers and on the the ones that those who lost the peace, on the guilty men, uh, on those in high politics and in foreign policy, um, and it you know it's been generally at the expense of neglecting what the people felt and that's partly because it's very difficult to determine the people or to define the people or public opinion at this time don't forget this is very at the very uh, birth of opinion polling Um, when and many many british politicians especially are distrustful of opinion polling because it's seen uh, as an american import gallup uh, was an american um, uh, outfit at the first gallup poll takes place in britain in 1937 to uh, get a sense of public reaction to anthony eden's resignation as foreign secretary so as i say the public is hard to define
0: But um, the aspect that you're looking at of this story is how women came to be blamed in some quarters for the failure of Munich.
1: That's right, and you know, that, that's the interesting thing about, when we're talking about the definition of the public as such, women sort of become uh, figured as the public, because they, they, they don't have political power, they have very little political power, even though this is after enfranchisement and after women um, can sit as MPs. So, it's really the women who become this kind of um, nebulous public, if you like, um, and it's their opinion that has to be uh, monitored, uh, gauged, surveyed, and, you know, the, because that opinion is so floating. Uh, I think there's a lot of anxiety about how women are kind of working behind the scenes, both really and psychologically, uh, in kind of uh, determining the nation's mood and the nation's resolve uh, to fight or to, you know, to to, to mount resistance uh, to Hitler.
0: And there were people who saw women as natural appeasers and they, they were to blame for this, what had happened.
1: Yes, I mean, there, there, there were women who were natural appeasers. I mean, the background to this is a, a, a longer history of women, the relationship between women and particularly between feminism and pacifism. Uh, already in the First World War at, in 1915, uh, women pacifists tried to meet at The Hague uh, to, to organize uh, women against the First World War and to mobilize uh, women for peace. Uh, and they set up at, at that meeting at The Hague, which was very contentious and a lot of governments didn't allow their women delegates to go um that women were stopped from going uh they you know they they set up the women's international committee the women's international league for peace and freedom um and that remains an important organization throughout the period we're looking at but there are others that emerge at that time as well and again there's a more general sense that women as mothers as wives as protectors of life are the world's innate pacifists
0: so there w- was some justification in the allegation that women were perhaps more likely to be pro-appeasement?
1: I suppose there was some justification, but it's very difficult to um, kind of substantiate because there was this notion and this representation of differentials between male and female responses. And this is especially evident in 1938 in um, the surveys conducted by Mass Observation, which was one of the uh, early attempts to gauge public opinion, but in a more kind of uh, trying to be scientific about it, but they were they were kind of trying out, experimenting with new uh, techniques like diary writing, overhearing people on buses and in the cinemas and so forth. Um, but they definitely mass up. Mass observers definitely uh, recognized or, or were, were were gauging this differential of male and female uh, response to appeasement. It was also in the newspapers. The newspapers assumed that women were uh, the most staunch supporters of Chamberlain. Uh, that it was the women's vote that was going to be a determining factor, especially in the by-elections uh, that followed Munich. And it's also evident in um, private diaries and memoirs where there's. Kind of this battle of the sexes going on between men and women about you know what what should happen whether whether the war should be fought whether war can be fought um, and whether there is a national and 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 personal resolve to fight and I think this is illustrated nicely in a contrast between two um, diary entries. Uh, there's in in Harold Nicholson's diary. Um, he talks about the fact that, you know, it's the women who are against Munich and it's going to be, women are going to be the decisive factor. And this is something he regrets. And he sees this as, as women's undue influence on politics. In contrast, another, Wood Nicholson himself was an anti-appeaser. But in, con, um, in contrast, Duff Cooper, who was also another anti-appeaser, wrote in his memoirs and his diaries at the time that it was actually the women who uh, supported appeasement within his little circle. So there's... It, it's, it's impressionistic in the end, but what we do find is that the newspapers definitely run with the perception that it's the women who are holding men back from doing the honourable thing um, and, uh, you know, bringing an end to appeasement.
0: And I suppose this, this whole idea that women would vote as a bloc is quite unusual. Would people ever say about, talk about the male vote in such a way?
1: that 's exactly right they don't talk about the male vote do they? Um, we talk only about um, this idea of a, a, a women of women voters of women uh, a women 's block um, and this this is this is a very enduring uh, uh, perception of, of women as voters that goes back really to 1918. And, and it's, it's, I think, largely due to the way that women's enfranchisement uh, came about uh, and was granted. So it set the tone, as I say, in 1918, uh, that women's enfranchisement was, was really represented as uh, women having power without responsibility. Uh, women were to have undue influence. Uh, they were um, seen as mother- seeing as be- seeing they were seen as those who mothered the nation. Uh, the state became a governess, uh, a governess state, a nanny state because of women's influence. Women were seen to be cur- curtailing, I think, men's healthy behavior and instinct. So these ideas about the women voter, about the women's bloc, take on new significance, as I say, in 1938, uh, in the shadow of the Munich Agreement.
0: Um, so do you think there's something of a backlash from people who didn't want female suffrage in the first place now sort of saying, look, what well, we've given women the vote and now look what's happened?
1: I think there might be an element of that and that there's two, you know, really strong strains uh, in, in in kind of the political history of suffrage. There's the anti uh, suffrage and the, and the pro-suffrage strain. Um, and I, I, but I think by 1938 the, it's a very different set of circumstances shall we say. But what is interesting I think is that women, although they're the majority of the population are always represented as a minority. Um, women uh, at least are seen to be one step removed from power and therefore they, they, they're represented and they're seen as a minority akin to an ethnicity or to an, you know, a, a defined communal group which is very strange. Um, but as I said, say, completely consistent throughout the 20th century and into the 21st. Uh, if we think about the excitement about women voting for the first time in the first uh, you know post-war election in in December 1918, uh, we see how this kind of gets started, this idea that there is a women's vote and that women are a block of voters. Uh, first of all, uh, the Pankhursts, who had been the leaders of the suffragette movement, Christabel Pankhurst, founds the, the Women's Party uh, in 1918. Um, so that really assumes, doesn't it, that women are going to vote as women and not as uh, citizens, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, so there's the foundation of the women's party. Now the women's party fails. Uh, Christabel Pankhurst doesn't uh, win her seat, um, and this. But as I say, I think this sets the tone that women are a party in and of themselves. Um, but then, as as the 20s and 30s wear on, uh, there's this growing sense, even though women are enfranchised on equal terms in in, in 1928, there's still this growing sense that women have power without responsibility.
0: So were women given a hard time during the early months of the war because they were seen as being so pro-appeasement?
1: I think you're right about that. And I think what's really going on is a blame game. I think women are being blamed for um, Britain going into the war uh, less prepared than it it should have been. That, you know, women were not only responsible for the timing uh, of of Britain's resolve to to go to war, but from the 1935 general election and even before, um, you know, with and especially in 1935 with Baldwin appealing to voters that the bomber will always get through that you know that this is we have to prepare for a new type of war that civilians will be the victims that was definitely something that was addressed to women and to their anxieties about their offspring and their husbands um, so by the time war comes it's still thinking about women in these in these ways uh, that women are you know the ones that are going to as I say hold men back and, and think only about their immediate circle and not about greater uh, world issues
0: and something that you mentioned in the article is a pamphlet called guilty women
1: and that yes yeah and guilty women this is a um a propagandist and journalist called richard baxter who writes this um it's more of a book it's more of a little novella actually it's quite long and it's, it's, it's as you say it's guilty women and that's a play on the very famous um uh, a book, Guilty Men, which has been, which was published only uh, probably a few months earlier, which was an indictment against the men of Munich, um, all the you know the archapeasers Baldwin and then of course uh, Chamberlain and and Chamberlain's cabinet um, who you know engineered uh, appeasement and Guilty Women is clearly a response to that, trying to show um, in a very sensationalist way uh, that women are also guilty and if not also guilty. They're even more guilty than the men. He's interested in in women who uh, are potential or real fifth columnists uh, in the phony war period. Uh, He's interested in women who are potential spies and traitors. But he also talks about a category, again, a more amorphous category uh, of of women who are guilty without knowing it because they supported appeasement, because they supported uh, the no more war movement and the pacifist movement
0: did anyone at the time challenge this
1: well guilty women is as a text is i think a little known text um it doesn't come up it's a, a little bit of a discovery of mine rather than um you know it's it's not it doesn't it doesn't have nearly the uh, attention and, and the status of of guilty men uh, as a as a historical document um and i think you know it do, do people challenge it? I, I th- you know, if you look at other works, I mean, we do find that throughout the Second World War, there's a great deal of anxiety about uh, about women's influence, about their behavior, about how uh, women's behavior in public and in private will influence male morale and 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 men's uh, you know desire to keep on fighting for for Britain and so forth. So in some ways, I don't think it, it changes a great deal. Um, but it's really again, it, it, it's not just something. That the war um, is responsible for throughout the it's it you take it right back to 1918 to the early 1920s where there's a lot of um, you know dislike of women and there's even articles um, in the newspaper called dislike of women and the attitude towards the public uh, you know the, there's contempt towards women um, both because there's the memory that they'd been militant uh, before the war and that they'd caused trouble and also the you know the, the in the first world war women were seen to have taken men's jobs and being reluctant to leave men's jobs after the war so there's this this I say this real sort of sex antagonism um evident here
0: and obviously we're talking here about the second world war but but did this idea of women voting en masse continue in the post-war period
1: I think it, it definitely continues, and it continues to the to this day. I mean, I've just looked at, you know, reminded myself of some recent headlines. Um, Nick Clegg surges with women in, in Metro's general election poll from April 2010. Um, even more recently, uh, Cameron loses favour with women voters, and, you know, the, he's lost, he only has 43% uh, uh, approval rating amongst women. I mean, we don't have polls like that, that... that, that you know, when we don't talk about the male voter in that way, do we? Um, all parties want to woo women voters and woo, I think, is an interesting uh, 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 choice of words. Uh, women are, you know, it's seen as this kind of, you know, romantic entanglements between male and female voters or between, more importantly, I think, between male politicians and women voters. Um, so women are seen as very, particularly vulnerable to the charms or lack thereof uh, of male politicians.
0: And do you think this is partly because Historically, there have never been anything like as many female politicians as there have been male.
1: Indeed, and you know, during the interwar period, the period that I'm thinking about, don't forget, even though women do get the do do gain the right to become MPs in 1918, uh, in legislation that comes very shortly after the Representation of the People's Act in the whole period, in that whole 20 years, 20 plus years, only 36 women become members of parliament. Um, That's really paltry. Now, that has to be seen in context before we Give it too negative impression of women's achievements um on the eve of, of war and after twenty one years of enfranchisement. Don't forget, this is really interesting timing um because uh, the twenty first anniversary of enfranchisement is being celebrated right on you know in the shadow of war. Um, so that creates a real um a really interesting vantage point in which to reassess or to assess the achievements that women made in those first twenty years after enfranchisement. That was Dr.
2: Julie Gottlieb of Sheffield University. You can read her article on the subject in the Christmas issue of BBC History Magazine. That's it for this week. Please join us next time when we'll be considering medieval drainage, which I promise is more interesting than it sounds, and the Olympics. BBC History Magazine's weekly podcast is recorded in Bristol and produced by the innovating Dave Gibson.